Good morning. It's Tuesday, March 7th in 2017, and this is the Red Sea Roundup. I want to thank everybody for joining us this morning. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Later in a while, we will be visiting with Gary Mashuda to talk about his book, The Case for the Deuterocanon, Evidence and Arguments. I want to welcome all our listeners here at KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station and also all our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena Waco. I also want to say hello to our producer, Dennis. Dennis, how are you this morning? Good. Good morning, Deacon Mike. How are you? Wonderful. Glad to be here. Me too. Me very, I'm, me, me, me too. <laughs> I'm saying a lot. Hey, I, I wanted to also say, keep it in prayer because pretty soon we're going to be adding and building on KINF 107.9 in Palestine, Texas. So that's coming up just around the corner. We've got all the equipment. We're assembling the pieces and uh, praise be to God at about a month from now, we'll be uh, airing Red Sea Roundup in the Palestine, Texas area as well. When you first thought about the radio station, did you have any <laughs> sense of how big this was going to get? I don't think I still have any sense of how big it's going to get. I, I take one step at a time and uh, knowing that God is leading us the whole way and that he picked someone that is unqualified but called. So, um, you know, thanks you're, be to God. You are in good company. Every one of the Old <laughs> uh, Testament prophets had the same complaint to God. I'm not qualified to do this. <laughs> and and four years ago, when you were a reluctant Red Sea Catholic radio listener, did you ever think you would be a, co a host on the radio? <laughs> no, especially my uh, reluctance to speak in public for most of my life has been somewhat of a puzzle to me how I ended up where I am, both as a deacon and as a radio host. <laughs> Well, we thank God for you at St. Anthony's. We thank God for you here at Red Sea Catholic Radio and that you're doing this. Uh, this interview today, especially in the second part of the show, will be something I'm going to sit back and learn and take lots of notes, and, and at least mental notes, to, to learn a lot of great information. Before we get too far into this, this show is airing live. So if you have something that you want to add, especially if you have something going on in your parish that you want to tell everyone about, uh, feel free to give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. And we're always looking forward to your calls. Dennis, one other thing that's coming up, we have a benefit dinner coming up for our Lorena Waco station. That is correct. We have our first annual Red Sea Catholic Radio Benefit Dinner in the Central Texas area. It will be on Friday, April 21st, starting at 6.30 is when the doors open. 6.30 to 9 p.m., we will have special guests, Trey and Stephanie Cashin, talking about inviting the Holy Spirit into our domestic church, which is any family that you're in, no matter what the shape, size, whatever it looks like, you have a domestic church. And inviting the Holy Spirit's not something that we all so readily do. And so this is a great talk, and I'm very much looking forward to Trey and Stephanie sharing great news. Um, we've got just, uh, I wouldn't say signed because it's not like a contract, but we've invited and got our, our former spiritual director, Father Patrick Ebner, will be doing our opening prayer because he will be at that benefit dinner as well. So come join Father Patrick by going to our website at redcradio.org, R-E-D, the letter C, radio.org. Click on the picture of Trey and Stephanie 
And uh, you can go and register for your individual tickets or tables there because we only have a limited space. It will be at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Waco again on Friday, April 21st. So we're looking for lots of sponsors. This will be our one major fundraiser in the Central Texas each year. And so we want you to come out for a great time. We're going to have a great, um, you know, uh, pit cooked pork loin and... Oh my gosh, Stephanie Lee, our station director there, picked a great caterer, and um, we're going to have some really good food, peach and apple cobbler, um, different vegetables, green beans, you know, red potatoes, and adult beverages. It is a Catholic radio station, you know. And of course, the best thing (laughs) uh, about all this is if you enjoy listening to Catholic radio, this is your opportunity to to make that known in a positive way to contribute to the radio station. And it is your radio station. And one great thing about this benefit dinner, it's, it's a different theme every year this year, it's going to be God bless America. And so we're going to be intertwining that and, and talking about uh, inviting Holy spirit into our country as well. So it's going to be a wonderful, fun evening. Uh, The people that come to our benefit dinners here really have a good time it's not a drudgery, oh, i got to go get to the radio station again. It's a fresh talk, fresh theme. Just, it's a lot of fun. Everybody's very loose and casual, and, and uh, it's just a great evening to get together with your fellow Catholic radio listeners in the Central Texas area. So Sacred Heart Catholic Church, April 21st. It's a Friday night, 6.30 p.m. in Waco. So please start registering now. And remember, seating's limited, so sign up fast. Yeah, please do. Hey, I have some prayer requests from our Moses ministry. If I can read a couple, few of those on the air. Please do. So if you have a prayer request, go to our website and click on the prayer button. You can not only list your prayer requests, you can state your answered prayers as well. And so we have Joe, one of our listeners. Uh, they pray for all of their children and grandchildren to be active and true believers in our Christian faith. Teresa asked for prayers uh, for the soul of her mom who passed away a few weeks ago and for Ryan to come back to the church and be washed in Jesus's mercy and kindness. I think we could all use some of that. Wonderful request. And we have Becca who's asking for prayers for a healing of relationship between her daughters and their father and for health due to various medical issues and for her financial situation situation to improve and for her aunt to beat cancer again. So God bless all those prayer intentions. And we on both of our stations are taking your prayer requests now online, redseeradio.org forward slash prayer, or click on the prayer button on our homepage. And be sure to also tell us any of your answered prayers as well. You can also list testimonials too about how Red Sea has touched you. We use those in a variety of different ways on the air at a benefit dinner in person with people. We've got lots of conversion stories, lots of great answered prayers. We've got lots of things that have uh, come about because of the radio station that God has made through Red Sea Catholic Radio. And we want to pray for all our listeners, especially during this Lenten season, that they have a wonderful conversion of heart during this Lenten season that moves them ever closer to God. Indeed, a great way to have a conversion of heart is to have a great reconciliation with God. And uh, we were able to participate that at at St. Anthony's here in Bryan last night at our parish mission. And so got a little spring in my step this morning. It's it's nice to have that uh, 
clear, cleaner soul. And, and uh, there's lots of opportunities. And Mike, uh, Deacon Mike is going to list those uh, first for our deanery in Waco and our deanery here in the Brazos Valley. Exactly. One of the signs of Lent is that we make a good confession before we approach the altar at Easter. And the Waco Deanery will have a lot of opportunities uh, this evening at 6 p.m. at Sacred Heart in Waco, Thursday 3-9 at 7 p.m. at St. Francis in Waco, Tuesday 3-14, 6-30 at St. Eugene in McGregor, Wednesday 3-15 at 6-30 p.m. at St. Eugene CCE in McGregor, Monday 3-20, 7 p.m., St. Mary in Waco, Friday, 324, 9 a.m. at St. Louis School. Uh, The confessions are going to be in the church in Waco. Tuesday, 328 at 6 p.m. at St. Mary in Mejia. Thursday, 330 at 6 p.m. at St. Thomas. And at 730 p.m. at Our Lady of Lourdes in Gatesville. And Monday, April 3rd, 5 through 6 p.m. and 7 through 8 p.m. at St. Martin in Tours. Tuesday, April 4th, 6.30 p.m. at St. Mary Church in West. Also at 7 p.m. at St. Jerome in Waco. And Wednesday, April 5th, 8.30 a.m. and 7 p.m. again at St. Mary in West. And Thursday, April 6th at 7 p.m. at St. Joseph in Waco. And Monday, April 10th, your last opportunity at 7 p.m. at St. Louis Church in Waco. And for our local deanery here in Bryan College Station, we will have tomorrow, March 8th at 7 p.m. at St. Mary's in Caldwell. There will be six priests available. On Tuesday, March 15th at St. Mary's in Hearn at 6 p.m., there will be five priests available. At St. Mary in Bremond on Monday, March 27th at 7 p.m., we have four priests available. Uh, Here at St. Mary's Catholic Center in College Station on Wednesday, March 28th at 7 p.m., there will be 12 priests available. We're expecting a big crowd. Uh, St. Francis and Franklin will have theirs on Tuesday, March 29th at 7 p.m. with four priests. Santa Teresa and Brian, Thursday, March 30th at 7 p.m. with eight priests. There will be a combined service at Good Shepherd Chapel. That's for St. Anthony's and St. Joseph on April 6th. Uh, The first one's at 10 a.m. and the second one's at 6 p.m. And St. Thomas Aquinas here in College Station on Monday, April 8th, which is uh, April 10th, which will be your last opportunity here, will be at 7 p.m. So there's no excuse for you not to find a penance service this Lenten season. And speaking of Lent, a lot of times we're confused about what the whole point of Lent is. We give up stuff. We're called to increase our prayer life. We're called to help others by giving alms. What's the point of all that? Well, the whole point of Lent is conversion. It is doing things differently than we did before. My favorite example is always the story of the road to Emmaus, the two disciples that are running away. They're disciples of Jesus. They spend time with him. They knew him, and yet they're running away. And yet 
when Jesus meets up with them and slowly brings them back, they have a conversion. And that conversion, the word we use in Greek is metanoia. And it doesn't just mean conversion. It means turning around. And that's what they do. They turn around and they go back where they need to be. And that's what Lent is intended to be for us. We do these things, the almsgiving, the fasting, the abstinence, not to do something, but to change something, to make us different. This is why for us as adults, it's not about giving up chocolate. It's about changing our life, about being a different person when we come out of Lent than we were going in, about turning around and going back to Jesus. So when we approach this Lent, let's not look at it as we're giving something up or we're not eating meat on Friday or we're giving something extra to the collection basket. Make it something that's going to change you. Make it something that after Easter is still part of your life. Make your life better. Make your life closer to what God wants it to be. Last Sunday, we heard about Jesus being tempted in the desert. And all of us, of course, hear that reading and we go, well, he's Jesus. Of course, he resists the devil. No, he's talking to us. All those temptations we face on a regular basis, the temptation to eat too much food, the temptation to eat the wrong foods, the temptations to be gluttons, Lent is a period where we look at ourselves and we go, that's not the person I want to be. Same thing holds true for the story of jumping off the parapet. That's what the confessions are all about, that we don't take God's mercy for granted, that we don't say, oh, I can do whatever I want because God is infinitely merciful. God always wants us to cooperate, and that cooperation means we realize that we shouldn't take God for granted, that we don't want to take God for granted, that we actually make the effort to ask for his mercy, that we go into that confessional and say, Lord, I screwed up, but I know that if I come to you, you will forgive me. And of course, the last temptation of Christ was bowing before Satan. I always uh, thought that that temptation was much more intricate than we make it out to be. What the devil was really saying to Jesus is, if you only bow to me, I will spare you all the suffering because I will give you all these kingdoms. I won't do anything else. All you have to do is worship me. And Jesus said, no, I will take the suffering. I will take the cross because we only worship God. And this is a reminder to us when things aren't going the way they're supposed to go, that perhaps we need to take a look at our lives and say, what is the priority in my life? Is it God? Or will I do anything to get out of this? Even to the point where we ignore God. Lent is about us becoming different people, turning around, and going back to where we're supposed to be, to that person that God wants us to be, to that person God calls us to be. So let's make this Lent really, really special. Let's make this Lent 
what it's intended to be. One of the ways we do this is by going to confession and starting over and feeling that weight lifted off our shoulders as we walk out of that confessional. Have a great Lent. We're going to take a short break, and we will be back on the other side with Gary Mashuda talking about the Deuterocanon. And welcome back to the Red Sea Roundup. This is our interview portion of the show, and this morning we have Mr. Gary Mashuda. And we're going to talk about his book, The Case for the Deuterocanon, Evidence and Arguments. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Deacon. I really enjoyed your book. What was your inspiration for tackling this topic? Oh, well, um, a few years back, I um, wrote a book called Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger. Uh, the untold story of lost books of the Protestant Bible, because Protestant Bibles generally are missing seven books in the Old Testament. Uh, Sirach, Wisdom, Judith, Tobit, Baruch, First and Second Maccabees, and they're also missing some sections in the books of Esther and Daniel. And so my, uh, my book, Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, I tried to answer the ultimate question, did Protestants remove these books, or did the Catholic Church add these books? Because that's a, a common charge made by Protestants, that the Council of Trent added these books. And I show in that book that, uh, yes, indeed, the Protestantism was guilty of removing these books, and that the Christian faith always accepted them. But over the years, I've had Protestants who have uh, read the book, and they, they thought it was very good, but they said, you know, you never really gave a positive case for the Deuterocanon. You never showed us why we should believe that these books are indeed inspired scripture. So I decided, you know, that's a really good uh, request. So I, I sat down and I put together the case for the Deuterocanon and uh, came up with uh, basically 15 arguments um, as to why uh, these books really are inspired scripture and belong in everybody's Bible. Before we get into some of the topics you cover in the book, what exactly is the canon? When we talk about the canon of Scripture, what are we talking about? Sure. Okay. Well, we're not talking about a weapon that shoots ballistic missiles. Okay. <laughs> when we talk about canon, what we mean is essentially the, the table of contents. The canon is a, a list, an authoritative list of the contents of sacred scripture. So anything that's canonical uh, is inspired and belongs in the Bible, but anything that's not canonical uh, would be outside the Bible. And uh, people have different words for it. Uh, Non-Catholics usually call, call it apocrypha. Uh, Catholics might call it pseudepigraphical writings. One of the things that I noticed in your book, and I've heard this before, is that when someone wants to dismiss the Deuterocanon as Apocrypha, they refer to Jerome's commentaries. What was your take on that argument? Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah, now to put in perspective, St. Jerome lived at the, you know, he lived in the 4th century, near the end of the 4th century, so... 400 years after the time of Christ. 
And uh, he was the greatest biblical scholar of his time. He was one of the few Christians in the Christian world that knew uh, not only Latin and Greek, but also Hebrew and Aramaic. And so the Pope commissioned Jerome to make a fresh translation into Latin of the Bible, because up to that time, uh, copies had begun to become corrupted, and it was time for a revision. And uh, Jerome, knowing Hebrew, he, he started off first like every other Christian uh, translator before him. He started going to uh, the Greek Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, and there were some other versions. And then translating the Greek, he tried to figure out what Hebrew words were used, and then figure out from the Hebrew to the Latin. And Jerome thought to himself, well, this is silly because I, there's so many different Greek uh, manuscripts. Why should I go through all this trouble when there's only one Hebrew manuscript available? And so I'm just going to translate the Old Testament straight out of the Hebrew, and whatever is not in the Hebrew isn't part of the Bible. And so he, uh, he was really the first early church father. Now remember, this is the 4th century. That uh, that rejected the Deuterocanon because it wasn't part of this Hebrew manuscript that he had, and uh, the the church reacted against Jerome in uh, a series of councils in North Africa, councils of Carthage and Hippo, and also Pope Innocent I also uh, re- reaffirmed the traditional Christian canon that had always been used that included these books in the Scripture. And uh, so, but uh, the problem was that Jerome, uh, when he was uh, inviting against these books in his introductions as he was translating the Bible, he he put these remarks: uh, you know, uh, "Sirach and wisdom is not part of Scripture," and then he would send his translation off, or he'd say, "Baruch is not part of Scripture," and he'd send it out. So even though the church answered, and uh, more or less condemned the idea that these aren't scripture. Nevertheless, the Latin scripture, with these introductions, uh, circulated throughout the West, and so it was an idea that just kind of lived on past its freshness date, you know. But but here's the real interesting thing, uh, Deacon, is up until that time, the Church knew that Jerome was wrong, but it couldn't demonstrate it. He knew it was wrong because church tradition had always accepted these books as scripture, but it couldn't demonstrate it. And actually, it wasn't until the 1940s, uh, or actually a little earlier, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, that we realized that Jerome was totally wrong about the whole issue, that there was not just one Hebrew text, but there are several different Hebrew texts, and that the Greek translations that he kind of uh, threw away as a uh, uh, translation that uh, was kind of loose and, and not very good, actually in some parts are very accurate. So th- the interesting thing is it wasn't really until the Dead Sea Scrolls that we can prove Jerome was wrong for rejecting the Deuterocanon. But it shows the importance of tradition, because the Church simply followed what was handed on to it, and, uh, and it was right and vindicated in the long run. But I think it also shows that the church trusted in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that what it had done was correct, and that even if Jerome, who was one of the smartest persons of his time, said this, that doesn't make it right if the church says it's not. Absolutely, and that's that's actually a good lesson for us today. Oh, yes. (laughs) 
yeah, you know, the the Holy Spirit doesn't abandon the church, and even if people who have lots of letters after their names say otherwise, you know, I trust us in the Lord, not in princes yes. or scholars. Yes. Uh, one other point that you raised is that nearly 80% of all the New Testament quotations from the Old Testament are actually from the Greek Septuagint. We see that yeah, especially yeah. with Paul. Right, exactly. And uh, in fact, uh, not only are there so many... So in, in other words, the Bible of the New Testament, the Old Testament for the New Testament, was this Greek translation known as the Septuagint that was a Jewish translation that existed a couple of hundred years before Christ. And uh, so that was their go-to Bible, was the Septuagint. And also what I point out in the book is not only does it use it as its primary text, but there are certain things in the New Testament that the authors just assume that you know this particular translation. And a great example of that is in Hebrews 11.35. In the, the book of uh, the Epistle of Hebrews, uh, the author is going through this list of Old Testament saints that exhibited supernatural faith. And then when it gets to verse 35, it talks about those who were uh, tortured and would not accept release for the sake of a better resurrection. Now, if you look in the Hebrew Old Testament or a Protestant Old Testament, you can go from cover to cover, and you will not find any example of someone being tortured, refusing release for the sake of the resurrection. But you will find that in the Septuagint in Second Maccabees, or in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, because we accept Second Maccabees as part of Scripture. So the inspired author to the Hebrews assumes that everybody knows about this, and everybody is reading Scripture kind of from this Greek text. One of the things that you pointed out that I found fascinating is that the word that they use is only found in Maccabees, and yet yeah. it's used in Hebrews when he's talking about that torture. Yes. Yeah, in fact, it's tympanon. It's uh, like where we get the word timpani. Uh, and usually in the Old Testament, it's used for a musical instrument. But only in, in Second Maccabees, it's used for an instrument of torture to be beaten. And yeah, so in Hebrews uses that very same word in its description. So that shows that the author of Hebrews has Second Maccabees in mind when he makes that reference. And you make a similar case for the uh, use of wisdom, especially uh, in Gospel of Matthew, because the way the phrase is used is only similar to wisdom. And even you mentioned that uh, Protestants' references at one point used that quotation out of wisdom as a reference for that quotation in Matthew. One of the things I do in my book, A uh, Case for the Deuter Canon, is uh, I re when it comes to New Testament evidence, I rely on Protestant, old Protestant translations, because they had cross-references to the Deuterocanon. That's before they removed these books, or they would call it the Apocrypha. And you're right. Uh, actually, you're talking about Matthew 27, 43, where our Lord's on the cross, and the uh, chief priests, scribes, and elders are mocking him. And they say, you know, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. And they said, uh, he, uh, let's see, he relied on others, let him save himself. 
He says, for if uh, he trusted in God, let him deliver him if he wants him now. For he said, I am the son of God. And you have to ask yourself, okay, well, obviously they're they're drawing this from sake of Scripture, but where in the Old Testament does it say that God would vindicate or rescue the, the true Son of God? You know, And if you look in the Protestant Bible, there's nothing that says that. But if you look in Wisdom chapter 2, verse 18, you find exactly that. It says, for if the just one be the Son of God, he, that's God, will defend him and deliver him from the hands of his foes. So here you have a case where the enemies of Jesus is quoting from a deuterocanonical book in a sense to kind of challenge him, you know, or not, actually not challenge him, but challenge God to vindicate him, you know. And, of course, God does vindicate Jesus, not by bringing him off the cross, because that's the instrument of our redemption and salvation, but he rescues him from the throes of death on the third day in the resurrection. One of the other things I found absolutely fascinating is you're relating Sirach to the prologue of the Gospel of John. That was oh, yeah. absolutely fascinating to me because I had not heard that before. Yes, that that was interesting too, and I, I ran across it kind of... Um, almost, you know, quote-unquote, accidentally. But yes, you're absolutely right. Actually, um, not only Sirach, but also Proverbs 8 have a lot to do with that. Now, of course, every we should probably remind the listeners that John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But what most people don't know is that in Sirach 24, a lot of those ideas in that introduction of John was actually anticipated. So John's drawing from both Proverbs and Sirach. Uh, and uh, the funny thing is, again, if you don't have Sirach in your Bible, you miss that whole background. In fact, one of the coolest things, Deacon, that I found in that regard was in John one fourteen, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the word there that's translated... Um, uh, uh, dwelt is actually the word tabernacled. He was tabernacled among us. And what's interesting is in Sirach, it talks about God dwelling in his people, and it actually uses the word skene, which is tent or tabernacle. So you actually, just like we said with Hebrews 11.35, where it uses the same words as the Deuterocanonical book, you know, John also uses the same kind of word that's used in Sirach to describe Jesus becoming flesh. One of the things that your book made much clearer for me is we always talk about that the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. And right. so much of what, you know, when we're talking about the books that are not found in the Protestant canon— contribute to the clarification of the New Testament, of the fulfillment of what is being said. And we miss so much of that if we decide those books don't belong there. Absolutely, yes. In fact, uh, you know, I liken it to uh, uh, the Supreme Court, especially for uh, non-Catholic Christians. They, they say that the Bible is the, the, the highest norm, the judge that judges all norms. And I say, 
if you want the court to rule correctly, if the Bible's the judge, then you need all the judges sitting, you know. And we know in the pro-life movement how important it is to have the right judges in court in order to rule correctly. And uh, so, yes, you're absolutely right. It, without the Deuterocanon, uh, you miss half the story. You know, you miss a lot of these references and things that the New Testament just assumes, like, for example, purgatory. You find that in Second Maccabees and Spades, and they just assume it because they they believe that the, the readers knew Second Maccabees. But if that book isn't in your Bible, then all these references and hints and allusions to purgatory just disappear. And that's important because so much of church doctrine relies on the continuation of revelation that, you know, the magisterium is part of God's revealed word because it interprets the written word for us. And if we don't have all the written word, then there's not a, not a complete work to interpret. Exactly. Yeah, and with the Catholic Bible, Old Testament history comes right up to about 50 years before the advent of Christ. So it's right up until the New Testament age. For Protestant Bibles, they're missing that 300 years of development. Their Bible, their understanding of Judaism is actually a Judaism that didn't exist for three centuries during the time of Christ. So I think that also uh, contributes a lot to a lot of misunderstandings between Catholics and Protestants, because there's there's still that revelatory development that continues through those 300 years. And like you you've already pointed out, like uh, with the introductory remarks of John and, and uh, these other passages, that the New Testament draws from some of this later revelation. And, uh, and if you don't have it, then uh, in a sense you, you've missed part of the story. Well, even just accounting for the Pharisees, you need that continued development of thought as far as resurrection and all these things that are revealed in Maccabees or clarified in Maccabees that add to where the religious leaders of Jesus' time, where that conflict comes from, where those ideas come from. And you throw that out and you miss part of that connection. Absolutely, yeah. So if you want to be a Bible Christian, I suggest get the whole Bible, right? Exactly. (laughs) Well, uh, by the way, Deacon, you know what's what's unique too is that uh, remember the Septuagint was written before Christ. This is actually um, uh, much uh, Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. The format with the Deuterocanon is actually much more ancient than rabbinical Bibles, Hebrew Bibles, and, and Protestant Bibles, because that didn't come about until after uh, Christ had already been raised and ascended to heaven, and, uh, you know, that was about a hundred years afterwards. So, actually, our Bibles are much more ancient in that sense than even Hebrew Bibles or Protestant Bibles. And that was one of the points you raised when they found the scrolls in the caves in Qumran, is that that clarified that, you know, the uh, Masoretic text was not the oldest text. There was an older Hebrew text that aligned itself much closer to the Septuagint than some of the Masoretic text. Yes, absolutely. 
but it's an interesting point that all these books were included in that Greek translation, and they weren't just attached to the end like an apocrypha. They were actually interspersed with the other books. That's right. Yeah, and part of uh, the case for the Deuterocanon is, uh, if this was there in the beginning, and the New Testament used the Deuterocanon, what happened to them? So also part of the case for the Deuterocanon is, I trace through history, how uh, in rabbinical Judaism, how it was eventually removed, and then also I, I show how in, within Protestantism, how it was removed as well. One other thing that uh, I found interesting is uh, you were talking about the scrolls found in Qumran and the fact that there were parts of the Deuterocanon that were written in a particular script layout that was reserved usually for strictly biblical texts. Yeah, and that, that was something actually I knew about when I wrote my first book, uh, Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger. But I always want to double, I, I want to go to the sources and make sure that the information is solid, so I didn't include it. But since then, I did find good information on it. But you're absolutely right. Not only was there fragments of Sirach and Tobit and, um, in Qumran, but one scholar, actually he's one of the, the best uh, scholars out there, Emmanuel Tovey, he's a Jewish scholar. He notes that the the um, the fragment of Sirach in Qumran, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, was in a very specialized format that seems to be reserved for only sacred scripture. Not only in Qumran, but also in another place called Masada, the Fortress of Masada. And uh, both these fragments come from sometime between 10 B.C. and 50 A.D., so this is right during the time of Christ. And interesting enough, both fragments have this special uh, script or special uh, poetic layout for those poetic verses in Sirach. And, of course, the assumption is, apparently, that there must have been a belief that Sirach was, in, uh, was a sacred scripture. You mentioned the debate between Johann Eck and uh, Luther. What did the role did that play in that whole development of the Protestant Bible? Uh, well, it played a, it played a huge part. Um, yeah, in my book, I, I show that Martin Luther, before his break with Rome, tr at, used and treated the Deuterocanon, the seven Old Testament books, just like Scripture. In fact, he even used it in the Heidelberg debate. Now, fast forward to that to 1519. Uh, Luther's in a debate with Johann Eck, who was an extremely astute Catholic theologian. And actually, it was uh, two debates, but the second debate focused on purgatory. And Luther at this time didn't deny purgatory, but he had a, a very strange notion of it. It wasn't traditionally how Catholics understood it. And so... Uh, Johann Eck cited a series of Old Testament texts to prove purgatory, and the last one was 2 Maccabees 12.46. And Luther, uh, he, he tried to contest every interpretation, but when it came to 2 Maccabees, Luther said uh, that text cannot be admitted into debate and to confirm doctrine because it, it's not of the canon. And from that moment on, Protestantism could no longer accept the Deuterocanon. 
Why? Because there was no doubt that Second Maccabees 12.46, where it talks about it being a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that that, that implies that there there is purgatory. In fact, it even implies a little bit about indulgences as well. So he denied that uh, Second Maccabees was canonical. And when Johann Eck pressed him in the debate, uh, Luther appealed to St. Jerome, which we talked about earlier, you know, this 4th century father who on a mistaken understanding of the Hebrew text, rejected the Deuterocanon. And then when uh, Eck pressed him even more and he said, well, there's councils that said these books are canonical, Luther says, well, a church can't give authority to uh, books that it doesn't already have. In other words, Luther wasn't going to budge on the issue. And like I said, from that moment on, Protestantism no longer could appeal to the Deuterocanon as inspired scripture, because to do so would ultimately show that purgatory and indulgences is canonical, and you know a, a teaching of God, and therefore Luther's whole dispute with the Church concerning indulgences was uh, he was wrong. He was against the Bible, and uh, and I also show that uh, historically Protestantism always refers back to Jerome, because he's really the only church father, or the earliest church father, to reject the Deuterocanon as Apocrypha, just like Protestants do today. And of course, since the Pope overruled Jerome, that also contributed somewhat to Luther's view of the papacy. Yeah, that's true. So he could, Luther couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't really appeal. Well, actually, even before that, earlier in uh, the date, the debate the day before, Luther had said that council, church councils can do err. In other words, he didn't feel himself bound to any church council that he felt was erroneous. So, actually, he already kind of chopped down that tree even before the debate on purgatory. But you're right, though. It tied up with indulgences and the Deuterocanon's papal authority. One of the things uh, that your book does very well is you lay out positive and negative proofs of the canonicity of the Deuterocanon. And one of the things that you use is explicit confirmation that they are scripture. And you quote... um, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Cyprian, Athanasius, Ambrose, Augustine, all major church fathers that at one point or another confirmed that they viewed this as scripture. Right, yes. In fact, you know, Deacon, this is one of those areas that really surprised me with the book because, um, you know, even after writing my first book, I, I knew that the early church fathers quoted uh, the Deuterocanon explicitly a scripture. And I knew that some even used it to confirm doctrine, which, by the way, that is really the main point for Protestants. They do not want these books to confirm doctrine. And I ran across a book written in the early, uh, you know, 1890s, where it was a Catholic author pointed out that uh, the early church fathers, about 10 or 15 of them, used it to uh, confirm doctrine against heretics. And I thought, well, you know, if there's 15, there might be 16 or 17, you know. So I decided to make a search of all the early church fathers in English that I had available to myself, just to see whether, you know, a few other fathers may have used these books to confirm doctrine. And what I was shocked to find was that 
there was a couple of hundred early church, uh, well, uh, about 33 early church fathers with a couple of hundred citations where they used the Deuterocanon to confirm doctrine. In fact, they confirmed doctrine that's incredibly important, like teachings of the Trinity, the Incarnation, the sovereignty of God, all sorts of things. And uh, so that was shocking that I, I thought maybe I'd find, you know, 12 or 13 or 14 quotations, and instead uh, I found over 100 in, in all sorts of different sources. So uh, since I, I don't want the readers to take my word for it, I actually include a short summary of all the times that they use it. So you can read through it and see how they use these books as sacred scripture, as authoritative text that can confirm doctrine. Well, I uh, looked at it, and I noted that you, in just the ones you listed in the book, there's 209 explicit confirmations that church fathers viewed it as scriptures, and 235 that they used it to confirm doctrine. That's an awful high yeah, number. That's considerably more than 15 or 16. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you also list— But, you know, it goes to show how, you know, the Protestants— uh, they don't know this. They they don't know church history, and and so this is a part of the rich history of the church that we've always appealed to these books. And for Luther to come fifteen hundred years after the facts, you know, af- after the fact, and say, "Well, I, I'm not going to allow it to be used in debate," uh, really shows, uh, you know, that that whole move was ahistorical. It was against what Christian church had always done up to that point. And for me, that's always been one of the issues when you look at Protestantism. There is a history to the church, and unless we believe the Holy Spirit was asleep for, you know, 1,500 years, how do you account for the development of the church along the line that it took? And then all of a sudden, at the Reformation, oh, all that was meaningless. And that provides a logical problem. Yeah, there often is a gap uh, in church history books written by Protestants. It starts with the New Testament, and then it fast-forwards to the 1500s and moves on from there. And there's, so there's this huge gap that apparently something occurred during that millennium and a half of <laughs> Christian life uh, that is pretty much unknown to, to most non-Catholics. And that's one of the things you hear a lot in conversion stories, is people that from an intellectual pursuit, began reading the Church Fathers and all of a sudden realized that what they're reading is the history of Catholicism. Right, yes. There's a saying by uh, uh, Henry Cardinal Newman, to go deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. It doesn't doesn't mean that you'll become Catholic, but when you look in the early Church, you find that... uh, the main tenets of Protestantism just simply wasn't there. And that's especially true with the Deuterocanon. One of the other things that uh, you mentioned is that there are numerous instances where the Church Fathers quoted the Proto-Canon and the Deuterocanon right next to each other, where they were proving a point and they would use something from... um, the proto-canon, and immediately also clarified with something from the deuterocanon. And that, again, showed that they considered it as scripture. Absolutely. In fact, there were so 
so many instances, I, I actually had to stop my list because <laughs> it would have gone on and on. Uh, yeah, and they never clear, they never qualify it. They never mm-hmm. make a distinction. They never say, or, you know, it says in the Apocrypha, this and that. But rather, they, they quote both as if there's no difference between the two. And again, like you just said, that implies that they saw them as part of the same corpus, the same body. And there was one final point I wanted to bring up, and this goes all the way back to the uh, times right after uh, the early church when the Hebrew canon was developed and uh, Rabbi Akiba ben Joseph was rejecting everything written originally in Greek, everything that came after Sirach. But the point you raise is that Obviously, it was being used. Otherwise, why do you need to say it can't go in? Exactly, right. Yeah, that was part of the argument of, okay, well, if this was always Scripture, then what happened to it? And like you said, around A.D. 132, this uh, very prominent rabbi, uh, Akiba, uh, made a declaration. He said, quote, The Gospels and the heretical books do not defile the hands. The book of Sirach and all the books written after it, from then on, do not defile the hands. In other words, they're not inspired. So here he's really defining what later becomes the rabbinical Bible. First, he rejects the New Testament, the Gospel, and the heretical books. And then he, interesting enough, rejects Sirach, the oldest of the deuterocanonical books, and he says, in all the books written from then on. And uh, so that shows, first, he's aiming this at Christians, right, because he rejects the New Testament, but it also shows that there must have been enough early Jewish Christians, remember this is A.D. 132, very early on, who must have accepted the Deuterocanon as inspired scripture for this rabbi to associate it with the Gospels. And so, yeah, so you have uh, Rabbi Akiba, who um, it was very instrumental in, in uh, making what would later become the rabbinical Bible without the Deuterocanon, explicitly rejecting the Deuterocanon with the New Testament. And what I often challenge uh, non-Catholics with is, well, if you can trust them for rejecting the Deuterocanon, how come you don't trust them when he rejects the Gospels? Because, uh, you know, it's either, either both or neither. Excellent point. Yeah. One of the thing, uh, thoughts I had when I read that is the people he was addressing— were people like St. Paul. St. Paul was a Pharisee, and yet in all his writings, he's using quotations from the Septuagint because that is what he had. And so what I saw when I was reading this is he's addressing people like St. Paul who consider this scripture and move from there into Christianity, and he's trying to say, hey, we're Jews, we're not Christians. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, you know, I, I don't know if I have this in the book, but Rabbi Akiba was also instrumental in uh, having uh, all the Jews who uh, all the Jews to follow the Hebrew text and no longer allow them to follow the Septuagint. You know, that text that the New Testament used. So he was instrumental in uh, getting rid of the Septuagint. And uh, at first, he he tried making a a Greek translation that was very literal from the the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, and other things too. But uh, yeah, so not only 
you're absolutely right. Not only are these anti-Christian measures, but he's also kind of moving Judaism away from the Septuagint and towards this one particular Hebrew text tradition. Which I saw as a connection to the other point you made for the negative proofs, uh, you know, times that people rejected the, uh, the Deuterocanon, but the point, again, being that you don't reject something that doesn't exist. So it, all the negative proofs basically point that someone's using them and someone's saying, hey, you're not supposed to be. Right. Yeah, how can you reject something that was never part of the, the Scripture, right? Right. Uh, obviously, somebody thought it was part of Scripture. And um, I think, you know, this is the whole point of uh, your book for me is the fact that, you know, someone had an axe to grind. Someone wanted to remove something that was there. And right. why was it there in the first place? Because it's God's word. God wanted it there. And, you know, we need to be humble enough to accept that even if we as an individual disagree with something, that doesn't make God wrong. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to yeah. thank you very much, uh, for coming back on the show, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and it was extremely enlightening for me, and I hope our listeners found it as enlightening as I did, and I hope everybody goes out and buys this, because it's going to open your eyes to something that you know we normally don't talk about. We all know we have seven more books in the Catholic canon, but we have no idea what they are or why they're there, so... I want to thank you very much for writing the book and for giving me an opportunity to talk to you about it. Oh, thank you. I, this is my second time on your program, and as always, it's it's great to be able to talk to somebody that's as knowledgeable as yourself and, and knows the material. So I'm very humbled that you read it, and thank you for having me on. Uh, thank you very much. I want to remind everyone we will be back next week. Your host will be Gene Wilhelm. And remember to tune in for that. Until then, when calculating the many ways you might share your time, talent, and treasure with the people of God, always round up.